are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. And I am psyched to bring you a very spirited conversation that I had this week with Christine Yu, the author of Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book yet, I'm in it. Christine called me up when she was writing it because she was finding, as I did when I started this podcast, that so many of the women that she was interviewing were like, why didn't anybody tell me menopause was going to be like this? Why didn't I know there were all these symptoms? Why didn't I know that all of this could happen seemingly out of nowhere so quickly? You know, all the stuff that we talk about on this show for the past three years. So I shared my experiences with her and she called up other women like Amanda Thebe, who's been on the show. She called up adventure athlete Rebecca Rush and she shared her experiences. She shared um, Dr. Stacey Sims insights and she dug into what research she could find for active women in menopause. And as you might expect, she found it lacking. Because as we know, as active women, we are in a small minority in the big picture of very sedentary populations. And while medical science has not prioritized women in research in general, let alone menopausal active women uh, in sport. So yeah, we have traditionally gotten the very short end of the research stick. So and this also led with Christine and I, to a broader conversation about all the shit we have to watch out for as girls and women, especially during this time of life, like being made to feel like you're other or less than simply because you're not male. How it's insane that girls still drop out of sports because of embarrassment about their boobs bouncing and periods And how we always have this nagging voice in our heads questioning our capabilities because of the messages that we get that our bodies are somehow defective or deficient compared to men's. Again, especially around the menopause transition where we were getting a lot of messages about being deficient and diseased and falling apart. (laughs) It's you absorb that and it can it can do real, real damage. And And we really do need to flip the script and to make our bodies the norm. Why don't we do that? Why don't we just make female bodies the norm? Because we are more than half the population and we are whole. We are strong, capable, whole people just the way we are. And don't let menopausal diet culture, which we also take on during this episode, tell you any differently. Anyway, I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation with Christine and shining a light on all of these important issues that are so ubiquitous and so common that we can sometimes just accept them and absorb them, though we really, really shouldn't. And I hope you uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, before we get into it, as always, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. We have that private hit play, not pause group continues to grow. I think we're working on about 28,000 women in there at this point. 
And and keep your eyeballs peeled for a menopause course that we are working on as we speak. It's called Navigate Menopause. It is designed to help you cut through a lot of this noise and confusion and misinformation and chart your course, your personal course to your best life through and beyond this really important, meaningful transition in our lives. So keep an eyeball peeled for that. Okay, I want to make a note that this interview will be the last new show of 2023. That is almost impossible to believe, but here we are. Make sure you stay tuned after the conversation. I have some amazing guests lined up for 2024, and I'll give you a little sneak peek into what's to come in the new year at the bottom of the show. Finally, I have an exciting announcement about our longtime sponsor, Prevenex. You know how much I rely on their Joint Health Plus supplement. Well, now they have come out with a Muscle Health Plus powder that I have been beta testing and I am all in on it. It combines creatine, essential amino acids, HMB, and other muscle building ingredients in scientifically proven amounts all in one shake. And I love it. And I am very sure you will too. Listeners to this show can pre-order now and save 10% by going to Prevenex.com and searching Muscle Health Plus. No coupon code required. Just hit up the site, Prevenex.com, pre-order Muscle Health Plus, and get 10% off right now. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. All right, Christine, welcome. And as we were just talking about before I hit record, you have been hard at work promoting this. When did it come out? You are up to speed. I'll hold it up so people can see it. It came out May 16th. Oh, okay. Yeah. So four months. That it seems longer, right? Does it seem longer to you? <laughs> it it feels like about six years at this yeah. point. But oh, yeah. it seems longer. Um, how long did you work on it? So I, I think I started in earnest working on it. I want to say September, 2020. And then we like manuscript was done, put to bed, went off into production, May, 2022. Um, Yeah. So about a year and a half, almost two years. Yeah. 
That's about right. That's about the <laughs> I was very naive. Period for book. <laughs> I was very naive going into this. I was like, oh, I mean, because you know, when you write magazine articles that you're like in stuff, like your turnaround is so fast. I was like, um, a year, 12 months, that's so much time. I can totally get this done. And I was like, nope, real and quick, figure it out. It's not. I know they throw out these figures like, oh, well, I think that'll come out in October 2025. And you're like, what? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah, but it does. It takes it takes a lot of time, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's laborious, and and you did a really lovely job. I mean, it was it it's fun to read, which is um a mission in of itself to make this kind of book fun to read. So it, I appreciate hearing that, kind of especially coming from you. So thank you. Yeah, what inspired you to do it? Um, so the. <laughs> The answer that I've been giving is is in large, which is true. It's in large part because <laughs> I've been, um, you know, through conversations with different athletes, you know, especially at the professional and elite level, um, as well as with sources. When I was reporting a lot of the articles I was working on, people kind of kept saying, like, oh, like almost like a whisper, right? Like a side whisper, like, well, we actually don't know that much about mm. female athletes, or we actually don't know how this kind of really works in women. And, and I'd be like, what are you talking about? Um, and then I had the opportunity to write a piece for outside, really looking at kind of this research gap in sports science research and got to talk to Stacey Sims a lot more. And Stacey's like, well, let me tell you <laughs> like what's going on. And so that kind of really got my wheels turning in terms of really trying to, or wanting to understand why this happens, um, systemically and, not only that, but just really trying to understand the implications of it, right? Like, what does it then mean for girls and women in sport if we are understudying them? The kind of more honest answer <laughs> is that my agent told me to write write the book. She came, she's like, I think this is a book. And I was like, I don't want to write a book. And she's like, but I think this is a book. It was like, I have so much respect for that. Answer. I don't know if I want to write a book. And so we talked a bit more. I was like, okay, you're right. Like, this is the, actually the thing that I've been thinking a lot about over these last couple of years and have been really curious about. And if I were to spend like two plus years working on something, um, this would be the thing. Yeah. And, and it, it does, it takes that, it takes that amount. It takes, you know, I respect that it is a lot. Um, writing a book is so much different than writing, as you know, a an article or even five articles. Um, it, and it's interesting because I asked when you started it because um, I, it feels 2020. And, and I don't mean that, you know, especially in the menopause specifically, like the rest of it doesn't. I wouldn't have been able to go 2020, but only because the conversation around menopause has changed so rapidly since we started talking about it, you know, I started this podcast in 2020. Um, you know, the next level came out, I don't even know, was it this year? Last year? Oh my God, Last time year? is so yeah. so crazy. I always have to look it up. But but from the time, yeah. like I started this podcast too, because literally nobody was talking about it. And as you mentioned in your book, in the, you know, the chapter, The Change, like nobody's talking about it. And I'm wondering if you feel like I feel like that landscape has really changed in that short amount of time. Yeah, it definitely does feel like it has changed. And that's one of <laughs> that's one of the frustrating things, right, about writing a book like this is because you do all the research, you put it to bed, and then it's still like another year before it comes out. And so things become outdated. And in the similar way with a lot of the studies I was looking at, I had to stop at some point, right? 
to like stop looking for new studies because I I couldn't incorporate that information or I'd drive myself crazy trying to do so. Yeah. But to your question, it, the landscape feels like it has changed phenomenally, right? That talking about menopause and acknowledging menopause is so much more in just, you know, the cultural conversation in everyday conversations. I have so many more conversations about it with friends of mine um, in a way that definitely we weren't talking about it before. I mean, it's in part because, you know, obviously I've aged and, you know, I I feel like very firmly in this like perimenopause phase right now, um, along with my, you know, my friends and, Mm -hmm. and other folks, but it definitely feels like it has blown up in a way that, um, yeah, when I was starting to write the book, it it didn't feel that same. Yeah, yeah, that that that's been my experience too. Which is which is great, and it's also a little um, disorienting because uh, I hope that the research catches up, and we'll we'll talk about this, yeah. like the holes in the research and um, where the scientific study needs more attention because we are now a ginormous market, which means, mm-hmm. you know, people are just jumping in to fill those gaps who may or may not have good intentions, may or may not have good information, yep. may, you know, like, and it's really, really difficult when you have the internet to yeah. discern that. Well, absolutely. And I'm sure your um, inbox is the same as mine, right? The number of PR pitches that you get for like these new menopause related products and supplements and like God knows what other type of tracking device or like whatever is out there. Um, And it's definitely on the one hand, I'm really happy and excited that people are acknowledging this, that we are starting to pay attention and put resources into this because it's been so neglected for so long. But to your point too, right? That because there is such a hunger for this information and so many of us right, are suffering and just trying to figure it out, like we do want the product, the plan, the supplement, the food, whatever it is to just help us feel better. And I do worry about that a lot too, in terms of, you know, how can we kind of continue to push this and like keep menopause at the forefront, but not in this like almost predatory kind of way, right? That you're taking advantage of folks because we are in this I don't want to say vulnerable, but kind of, right? Like we're in this state where we are really just hungry for something. Yeah, I agree. And I use that term a lot. I use the term predatory a lot because it feels very predatory, especially when they zone in. I mean, it may, the thing that makes me most sad, Christine, is that I feel like the worst parts of the beauty industry Mm -hmm. magazines have found and followed us and are honing in on us, right? Like you had all of those magazines back in the 90s and early aughts, you know, talking about muffin tops and saddlebags, like all the terrible things that they talked about women's bodies that they were insecure about. And now we're talking menopause and they're like just like zoning in on anything that makes you feel uh, bad about yourself. And just and it I oh, I hate it. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I just hate it. I was actually just thinking about this this morning, how it feels very diet culture-y, right? It yes. feels very much like those women's fitness magazines. And like, in a way, like I get why it makes sense or like why that tactic kind of works because that's what we grew up with, right? Like as like Gen X and like, you know, growing up in this diet culture, growing up, like always like thinking about our bodies in a specific way or you know, not having just the freedom to be 
just ourselves and in our bodies and live at it as it is. But like, I get why then we get to menopause and everything feels really uncertain again. Like, like it is right. Like it's, it's like adolescence in in it again, because our bodies are transforming so much. And so I get why like those tactics work, especially with this population. Right. Yeah. We've been, we've been primed for it. Yeah. Yeah. Our whole lives. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. (laughs) Yeah. I I literally just wrote a blog that'll come out next week because I'm so, I'm so frustrated with it, but you know, it is what it is. Um, You have to take the good attention with the bad, I guess, and just try to filter your feeds appropriately. (laughs) That's the only, the only advice I have. One of the things, you know, speaking of misinformation that I really wanted to talk about early on in this conversation, because I kind of really scratch my head at it, is that there's this arm of misinformation on the internet that is calling menopause new. You know, like they're like, oh, we're new because women didn't live that long before. And I'm like, uh, you don't you know how average life expectancy works, right? It doesn't mean everybody dropped dead at 48. You know, it just like um, and, and you know, in your in your book, you found, you know, um, you know, references to menopause articles. I love the name of the on the end of menstruation is the time for the beginning of various diseases, you know, from like 1710. Um I'm wondering, like, when you went historically, when you looked back, like, what what did you think you would find? What stood out to you as you explored the history of menopause through a medical lens? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I thought I would find kind of that similar um, sentiment and bias against women's bodies that we've seen so much when it comes to just sports and athletics in general, right? Like that mentally that, you know, the body is so frail, your uterus is going to fall out, like, God, you know, don't mess up your menstrual cycle, or, or, you know, all these things around fertility. And it makes sense, right, that because fertility has played such a central role that the kind of commentary and criticism would focus more specifically on those factors and issues. So that's what I kind of assumed. And so, you know, when things like that article, right, when we're talking about menopause and its connection to disease and you're like dying and all of this stuff, like that wasn't super surprising to me. I guess what was surprising, I mean, surprising and also not, is just the way that it was just assumed and accepted that like, this is a thing that happens, but then there was no kind of further inquiry into it, right? That there was just like, that's the sucks to be you kind of thing. And that um, we just accepted it as a fact that this, this idea that menopause is adjacent to death, right? It's like kind of that next step before death. Whereas there's so many, <laughs> there's so, potentially so many years, right. In between those phases, but that we just accepted that. And we didn't even like thought that it was interesting or necessary to try to investigate more how we could help women who were obviously suffering from these symptoms, right? That, that these symptoms matter or that the only, that the only um, kind of treatment that was worthy was something that would bring estrogen back, right? That would, that would kind of bring back their fertility, their youthfulness. Um, So that's the piece of it that I was really interested. This, this idea that we want to kind of like freeze frame women in this like fertile stage, and that we don't allow just for the natural, like normal progression of our bodies. Yeah. And, and the, 
you know, there's so many echoes to what I'm seeing now to some of that conversation, yeah. you know, and and we've been here before with the feminine forever conversation, mm. you know, and from the 60s and and it it feels very western centered mm. to me. You know, like we look at everything sort of through a disease lens and yep. through a medication lens and it's not acknowledging that there are women literally millions around the globe who do pretty well you know they live long lives yeah. and they're not they're not medicalized and why aren't we looking harder at that yeah and like why is that not the norm right why right. do we have to make it such that it is something like this disease that we have to figure out and like cure in a way right um, I don't know what made me think of this, but like when you were talking about, you know, it feels very westernized. All I can think of, I don't know if you are familiar with this cartoon of Asian women, kind of like the Asian women aging time, mm -hmm. you know, over different time frames. And it's like they all, you know, for young Asian women and kind of their mothers, they're in the fifth in their forties, they all look the same. They're really young, right? Like kind of that that myth. And then all of a sudden you turn into this like old Asian woman with like the perm and like the glasses and the droopy <laughs> cheeks and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's kind of how it feels in a way, right? Like that, but we don't like, where's that middle ground that we're kind of missing? And why does that have to be invisible? Like, why can't that actually be brought more to the forefront? Yeah. And I, I mean, I mean, I think the answer is men i mean and i don't mean that you know i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to be like oh it's always the patriarchy but i mean it like men it, yeah but yeah i mean men have been they dominated medical circles right for yeah so long and and the only interest seemingly that the medical system had in women was their uterus you know their ability and that was it i mean we were they the uterus wandered around and it like caused all kinds of problems and you know like but we that was it it's just so crazy to me um and and the only way it changes and i think why we're seeing the conversation actually move at this point at this speed is that you have a massive generation of women who yeah. came into the workforce in the 70s and through title nine being active you know bringing it to the active piece and now they're all of age and platform where they have microphones and they're in charge of things and it's there's no putting that genie back in the bottle like now that's what it takes yeah, I think that's a huge piece of it, right? It's like we see this huge shift in kind of the demographics of folks who in, are in power, who have the de decision-making ability, who have money, frankly, right? Like um, to focus on this and, and to say like, <laughs> no, 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 we're, we're actually going to, we're actually going to look at this and we're actually going to try to figure this out. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it, and it took, I'm very glad to see it happening and I'm glad to see those large voices speaking. I I do and I've mentioned this before and I hate feeling like I'm throwing Oprah Winfrey under the bus every time <laughs> I mention it. But but it does bother me that you know like now that she, she is I don't know how old. She's in her 60s. And she is now very menopause forward. I wish she had talked about those heart palpitations and feeling like she was dying when she was like way younger 15 years ago or so yeah. then. You know, and just like use that. I'm happy to see more women like her using that platform and talking. Um, it, it it feels uh, 
it feels a little like oh a little bandwagging you yeah, know jumping yeah, yeah, yeah. now and and that's fine whatever it takes to get this conversation and this research going but uh yeah well, i mean we're here and the more women that that use their platforms like her the better but i do wish that that yeah because you can imagine how much of an impact but, that would have had right? yeah we'd be so much further down the road yeah i mean it's you know i mean it's oprah <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. So uh, speaking of this um, and I and I don't expect you to be clear, Christine, to give me an epidemiological answer to all of my <laughs> questions here. But, but one of the things, speaking of hormone therapy and sort of like, you know, now we're in this place where there are a lot of people very um, almost like it, they put it in the water. I think some people, if they could, right? Like, <laughs> you know, without it, you are deficient. You are in a disease state if you don't have hormone therapy you know, there's a there's a large drum beating that way. And, and I know we have been here before and, and we even though we don't 
yet have the evidence that it will protect all of these diseases that it's being mm-hmm. you know promoted to protect it a lot of people are just saying that sort of fast and loose so one of the things that i've been really curious about as i think about it is that what did women's health look like from the mid to late 70s until the early 90s because as you note in the book estrogen was the fifth most prescribed medicine in the US in 1975 and the women's health initiative the big study that got stopped early you know that caused all the hormone therapy to cease um they closed the recruitment in 1998 so that's the, that's a lot of time where you had a lot of women on estrogen and other hormone therapies do we have a picture of what those cardiovascular rates looked like do we know that did they did they go up after millions of women literally stopped using hormones overnight when they stopped the women's health initiative. Yeah. It's a fantastic question. And I hadn't thought about that before because you're right. Like this is a huge population that we're, we're talking about here um, and would make an amazing study. Right. But as far as I know, um, I don't know if we have any information about what's gone on with that population of women who were on therapy and then came off. I think that I mean, my guess is that I doubt it, right? Like I, I doubt that they were seen as were, you know, no, no one would have thought to kind of track and, and, you know, keep tabs on that population of folks um, kind of as they moved on. And as you know, right, like we need that, that kind of longer term data to really understand what's going on. But um, yeah, I don't know. That's, a, I mean, I would be so curious to find out. But what also blows my mind, right, is that estrogen being the fifth most prescribed medication, and then all of a sudden it's taken off the market, like, and folks not really even thinking about it's like, okay, what could be put in place of that, right? Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's Women it's like taking, just <laughs> like just taking like Advil off the market or something like that and be like, or I'm, that's a bad example, but, you know, but taking some uh, something else that feel, that is so like kind of essential or critical or, or whatnot, that doesn't really have an alternative. You're just taking it off the market and be like, mm. <laughs> well, it's not, I don't know if it is such a bad, you know, for, like for women who need it, it, it is, you know, it, it's a lifeboat, right? Yeah. Like there are women who have very severe symptoms and we know that that should be addressed full yeah. stop. You know, yeah. I mean, especially now that we know that there are connections to severe symptomology and chronic yeah. disease, like those yeah. things, we need to address that, you know, like, so it's not, it's not that off of a, you know, <laughs> of a comparison. And yeah, it's a very good observation. Like, okay, sorry, ladies. And then just nothing for and then 20 just nothing. years. Yeah. 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 And no more study. And you know, no I mean, I, and I think because, you know, that was their moonshot and it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I then everybody's like, well, we're not going to put any money in that anymore because that yeah. makes sense. You know, yeah. it's 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 kind of crazy. And it's really put us in this position where we have nothing. I mean, we have this giant gap and they either trying to go back to the women's health initiative and parse out things, you know, and try to tell, but, but hormone therapy itself has changed, you know, and we, you talk about that, um, you know, it, it's treated in the research as a monolith, you hear HRT, MHT, you know, it's like, and, you know, when you, in your book, you talk about, 
methodology and the importance of it and the problem with noise in research. And that's actually why women didn't get studied for a long time, because we were, quote unquote, noisy because we had all these hormone fluctuations. But I personally think there's little more research that's noisy than all the research I'm seeing on hormone therapy, because it just sort of lumps it in. And there's so many different forms and formulations and combinations that we know all have like slightly, if not greatly different impacts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like you've come in, you come across the same problem too, right? When we're talking about like uh, hormonal contraceptives as well, there's so many different formulations. It's changed so much too, since a lot of the early studies that were done. And I think that that's something that really, that isn't acknowledged enough, you know, personally, I think in a lot of these studies, because like, like you said, like we do just kind of all lump it together. I, I'm not sure. And so I don't want to say, right. But um, I'm not sure how, how detailed, you know, folks are kind of parsing out the different formulations that people are using, whether it is hormonal therapy or, you know, or contraceptives, right? Like if they're actually going to that detail to really understand um, what's going on there and how those different profiles affect the participants in their larger study. Because again, that that makes it harder to study. It makes it harder to come up with um, a finding, an average response, right? Because that's what all these studies are generally kind of concerned about is like, you want to find what the average response is. But I think it, again, it does such a disservice and it, it simplifies things um, almost too much, yeah. right? Um, in the same way that I feel like a lot of the menstrual cycle stuff simplifies things too much. Um, and it doesn't kind of communicate the fact that, you know, hormonal profiles, whether it is something that you're taking externally or if it's your own, you know, internal hormones, those profiles fluctuate so much between individuals, even within yourself, right? They can change over a course of, you know, month to month, obviously over the course of a lifespan, but we don't recognize that much. So we keep looking for, I think like these one single answers that's going to fit everyone, which I don't know. I feel like that's part of where we get stuck and why it feels like sometimes like there is no options for folks because like, you know, there isn't enough choice in what those treatment options are to actually you know, really help someone with their symptoms. Um, Like I just had lunch with a good friend of mine who is, you know, post-menopause and has had a really hard time of it. Right. Like, and she's been on hormone therapy, been off of it, been back on, um, you know, has, you know, has read all of your and Stacey's books and like, I've been like trying all these things, but it's stopped working and it, and it feels really frustrating, like hitting this wall and being like, I don't know what else there is out there, right? Like, I don't know what else to do at this point. And I, that makes me really angry, right? That we are in this position where we feel like we have no options. Yeah. And it takes, you know, and I'm sorry to hear that because, and I'm sure she is not uh, unique in that situation. I mean, that we're in a, we're in a place and it, it takes a lot of work on oneself, right? Like, so we're in a place where you can like there are certain known entities within research about what estrogen does, what progesterone does. You know, you can you can sort of take that basic biological research and then you can go on to some other research on like what strength training does to satellite cells. You know, you can yeah, take yeah, all yeah. of the research and then like what Stacy and I try to do is sort of pair that 
best together as we can. So like at least women understand the basics of sort of like, this is what all this stuff does. And if you're feeling X, Y, and Z, here's what might help. But as to your point, there is like, you need to track for yourself and you need to trial and error. And there will always be outliers, you know, and they're always, and if only we all had like a personal person who could like help us. And, you know, even then, like it's, it's, it's hit or miss we're not, too. We're not test tubes. People yeah. are not test tubes. You know, we are, you can't just put X and Y into the test tube and always get Z. Like it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. But I do think like that piece of it, that like the individuality and the nuance and like the different formulation, like all of that is something that, um, yeah, I'm just not sure most people are really thinking about or, not necessarily on the on the science level, scientific or scientist level, but you know, kind of general public wise, right? We're not necessarily thinking about that or attuned to all of those different nuances. Um, but I do think that that's something that you know the researchers really do need to kind of parse out a little bit more, figure out how to handle. Yeah, yeah, and and especially I think, and and they know it. I mean, you yeah. you, you have like. I had Dr. Stephanie Fabian on the show. You know, she beats that drum particularly a lot. Like we cannot just keep talking about hormone therapy as a one thing. Like it needs to be, we need to do research on like the different types and the formulations because they have different effects. And that's really hard to do. That research is is really hard to do. And it's just going to, it's going to take time. And in the meantime, we're going to have all the people on the internet, as we just said in the beginning of the conversation you know, selling their solutions because there's all these holes. And, uh, you know, I, I think that if, if there's anything I want people to get out of this conversation, it's just understanding that, just understanding that, you know, there aren't, not, nobody does have all the answers and there's a reason for that. Like the, the research is light years behind and it's very hard to do. And it takes time, right? Like yeah. it also takes time to not only do the studies, but then to build up that research base and evidence base yeah. and, it's yeah, it's really hard. So speaking of research, like in your book specifically, I mean, it like my podcast and the work I do, it's really geared towards active women, which is a whole issue in and of itself, because most people aren't active, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the vast majority of the population does not exercise on purpose, Yeah, let alone meet any, you know, or let alone line up for a marathon. So when you're talking about a, an active to an athletic population, the the research falls off a cliff. There's so much less. Mm-hmm. And then when you want to talk about women, menopausal women, like, you're, it, I mean, you just keep going smaller and smaller. I'm wondering, like, given what I just said and the fact that, you know, the landscape is very Swiss cheesy in, in its holes, um, where do you think the biggest gaps are for when you're talking specifically about performance in a peri and postmenopausal population? That's also a really great question. And I think, and this might be just my bias in understanding some of this stuff, but for me, it's, it is really understanding what the effect, like we know, I feel like we know pretty decently, right? Like on one end of the life spectrum in terms of like the effect of like estrogen and progesterone coming into the system and what happens there. Like it's that piece that I want to know more about. It's like, as, as you know, these hormones exit or, or kind of decline and decrease uh, or the ratios like come out of whack, right? Like what does, how does that then impact things like, 
you know, we talk a lot about RETS, right? Relative energy deficiency and sport. Like how does mm-hmm. that then impact those other systems and then our ability to train and adapt to that, mm-hmm. right? So like, like you were saying, like we do know some stuff around, you know, how it affects like satellite cells and, you know, obviously kind of bone stuff and, right. and all of this stuff. Um, but I guess for me, like that bigger picture of what's that macro level environment, um, what is the changes in that larger macro level environment that does then impact our ability to train overall and to adapt to training? Um, because again, like I can look at something like, yeah, okay, great. That does something to my satellite cells. But what does that mean? Right? Like, I guess like for me, it's like, it, it is that bigger picture of how does this all kind of come together so that we have a better sense of, um, how to attack, not, I don't want to say attack, but how do we, how do we address this? Right? Like, how can we then go about some of these, some of these things? So like, that's a piece of it for me. Um, the piece that we were just talking about, like hormonal therapy is also a big piece and really trying to understand like what's then the interplay between, you know, bringing in this, you know, external hormones into the system is that, kind of this does that play like the same or similar effect you know really as our endogenous estrogen and all of that how does that you know compare to something like hormonal contraceptives as well right like kind of where how does what does that spectrum look like um yeah i think like those are kind of big questions for me and just trying to understand that and you know does that then mean if our you know, I think like on a very simplistic level, people might think like, okay, your hormones are decreasing. Does that then mean your, your physiology and you're acting more like a male body, right? Like, which I think is again, simplifying things way too much, but really just trying to understand what some of those nuances are. Yeah. And I've, I've started to see research bubble up in that effect, which is nice to see, you know, it is, it is good to see. It's interesting sort of dovetailing the the two conversations we've been having is is about like the monolith of hormone therapy and and some of these holes. Like I will see women in the group, you know, say that they're on hormone therapy and like their training is amazing and all this. And then I I just find out that all they're taking is testosterone, you know, and I don't mean which is fine. I'm not trying <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. to, but I'm yeah. just like, well, there's a reason it's a banned substance and like you know, <laughs> it tested competition because it does have an ergogenic effect and that's not necessarily the same as what hormone therapy as a whole, you know, would, yeah, yeah. hormones would have. So the, it's, um, I have no point there other than, yes, we do need no. to sort of tease that all out a bit more. Well, I think like the other, just thinking about it a little bit more, I think the other piece of it too, you know, also what we've been talking about is understanding that the scientific research and really understand like building up this evidence base is going to take a really long time, right. Yeah. That, um, you know, we're year, probably years off from and who knows if we'd ever get to some sort of consensus-based guidelines or anything like that. But in that interim, what I'd also like to see is more like practical research in terms of like, what can we do now, right? Like what are some, like, what are some, you know, interventions, like whether it's exercise or nutrition or, you know, what have you, like, what are some interventions that are proven to help now, right? As we wait for this other research to come down the line. And I know that there are some, some folks out there that are doing, you know, some work around that, but um, that's what I want to see more of because we can't keep, I mean, I guess we'd be forced to keep waiting. Right. But like, I feel like 
we deserve to have some more options and answers at this point. Oh yeah. And and that's that's sort of what I was saying before. I I, I don't expect people to just not do anything either. Yeah. You know, that obviously <laughs> that's why Stacy and I write the books that we do and that's why I do the work I do. I mean like we take our yeah. best shots with what we have yeah. and adjust accordingly. And you know, a lot of times it, it works pretty well. But it, it is, it's a I think the thing that is, you know, when you're talking about you know, what happens with performance and adaptations as the hormones walk out the door. What makes that tricky in my mind, Christine, is that there are these big dominoes that, yeah. you know, like sleep, right? If your sleep is disrupted by like by by those hormones walking out the door, even if those hormones walking out the door won't necessarily mess up your training adaptations per se, let's just separate yeah. those things. The sleep will. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. And so it's really hard. It's, it's hard to just tease out like what is causing what at some point because because the disruptions disrupt things that disrupt things yeah you know so it becomes and I always tell people like try to hit the big ones you know yeah. and see if that helps because if you sleep better you're going to have better adaptations irregardless yeah. of what is happening oh a thousand percent right like that's that's such a big factor and kind of yeah. you know elephant in the room for sure yeah, there's a few elephants. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. But yeah, it, it does take um, just sitting down and looking at like, what is the big thing that's being disrupted? And sometimes I, I try to approach it that way when people are because it can be very overwhelming. You're like, I don't even know where to start. I'm like, well, what's what are the big things and start yeah. there? Yeah. And it's amazing, right? How just taking care of some of that stuff can help so much. Yeah, 100%. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Did you ever wonder when you were writing your book what the research landscape might look like if women were the default instead of the afterthought or worse, noisy data to be avoided at all costs? The special case. You're a special case. (laughs) Um, Oftentimes, right? Because I think that one of the things that I hope the book kind of illustrates too is really kind of the systemic level and the infrastructure level ways in which we kind of prop up all of this bias, right? In that um, 
And that really comes from how these systems were set up in the first place that created all of these blind spots that created just the way that we do things is the way that we do things. So we don't even question. Um, but I, I have thought a lot about that because if I, <laughs> I mean, so many things I feel like would be <laughs> much better if women were in charge, but I feel like I almost, it maybe it is naive of me too, to think of it this way, but you know, I almost feel like if women were kind of the default from the beginning, um, we the the amount of research and just information that we have about the body, I feel like it would be so much richer. But I also feel like, you know, we would also be in a position where um, we'd be open to and willing to study male bodies as well, right? That it wouldn't just be this exclusionary thing of like, we just need to study women and that's it. And we, that's all we need to understand. But I do think because women's bodies are so complicated and like have so many different factors happening that it creates, um, it almost expands our like knowledge base of what human beings are and can be in a way that um, I'm not sure that we get as much out of when we're just studying men's bodies, if that makes sense. But I do think that like, I don't know, I feel like we would have greater perspective. We would be open to willing and studying like men as much as we're studying women, that there wouldn't be this kind of exclusionary feeling. And again, like I said, like maybe that's just my own kind of, you know, naivete and like hopefulness. Um, but yeah, I feel, I feel like it would be really different. It would be very different. I, you know, I wonder if it would be like, I mean, it, it's such a thought experiment, but I wonder if it would be like, because we are always framed as, and I have been guilty of doing this myself, and I, I try to check myself when I do, we, we're always like comparing ourselves to the male ideal, almost, yeah. right? You know, bigger, faster, yeah. stronger, um, as opposed to like, we'd be like, wow, you know, as opposed to women who can go forever, men have these big fiber two muscles that just yeah. burn out right away. And they, yeah. they don't recover quite as quickly, you know, like, like, that's yeah. how, you know, we're always framing ourselves as like, we're not as, you know, as, 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 as men, but like, you could flip that in many places yeah. and be like, where we are advantageous and men aren't, you yeah. know, I mean, if you yeah. Like if you were going to just completely flip the script instead of the in the lovely way you said, like level the playing field and just understand us equally. But I, also, but I also think that, I mean, it does, I feel like it would also just change. Like it's more than self-confidence and belief in yourself, but I, I feel like it's, it's just kind of um, this idea that women have constantly had to make ex like come up with not excuses, but like no explain themselves, right. Or to um, question themselves in their experience or to, to kind of dismiss their experience because it doesn't match up to men's. Right. So even thinking of things like, you know, girls dropping out of sport because the, of their breasts and like breast pain, breast movement, not having sports bras, feeling embarrassed about it. But like, what if we lived in a world where it wasn't embarrassing? <laughs> like your boobs just move because your boobs move. Right? <laughs> like that's, It just is the way it, it is. Or like you have your period and it like, because like that is just the way it is. And it's not something to be embarrassed about or to me to be, to feel badly about. Or it's like we constantly, or at least I feel like I constantly question my body and the validity of my body and my experience or my ability to do something or, um, 
the fact that I have a bajillion knee injuries because of my, you know, terrible, like deficient, like defective body and stuff like that. I wonder um, if we didn't have all of that hanging over our heads, how that would, you know, just transform like our ability just to be in the world in a way that we can be our full selves. I agree a hundred percent with that. I mean, that, that all of that. And, and I, it would be, it would be so different. And I think about that when I, you know, like when you're talking about, we, we just get periods and how much shame is felt around like, oh my God, leaking. Like, my yeah. God, what if you have blood on your pants? And I think like, if, if men had periods and it was the, like, say it's like we're watching Monday Night Football and some guy's gushing blood all over his pants. The people would be like, that man is a warrior. Can you imagine how much blood he just lost and what the cramps must be like? Yeah. I mean, 100%, that's how it yeah. would be framed. He's, you know? before he's <laughs> out there like kicking ass and he's caught his period. Right. Like that guy, well, they don't make him tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should really, I just, yes, we should be framing it the same way. And it's instead of this, and I think we're getting there, but it's, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming yeah. to not feel this shame around just being a female in this world. Yeah. It's so hard. Right. And then like I have nieces who are growing up right in, in this world and like watching them try to navigate it. And in a lot of respects, I feel like they're light years ahead of where I was yeah. at their age. But on the other hand too, like this stuff is still so pervasive in terms of like being embarrassed about things, you know, their bodies and periods and all of this. And I feel like, I don't know if, if we can, if there's some more work that we can do just to normalize a lot of this stuff. And I feel like it does start a lot with like just plain education at that, at a younger age. Right. And just kind of understanding your body outside of just, you get like your cycles, how your fertility is controlled. Um, Like it would just be so helpful. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Well, I I really appreciate, you know, the work you do and shining the lid in these things and just talking about them and thinking about them through these lenses. I, it it makes people think and realize where our knowledge still needs to grow. And I think that in itself is a great service. And and I'm, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would just sort of like to leave the audience with as far as getting up to speed, so to speak? <laughs> Um, no, I mean, we covered so much. And the only thing that I would say is, you know, it's like, it's also a lot of credit to the work that you and Stacy are doing or have done, right, in kind of pioneering this field and really being the first one of the first people out there talking about all of this stuff and why it's important. And I definitely couldn't be where I am or, you know, have written the book without the work that you guys have done. So I do want to just say thank acknowledge that and say thank you too. No, that's very nice. It's a mutual admiration society here. So thanks so much. (laughs) Well, that is our show. We will be taking a two-week podcast break over the holidays, where you'll find a couple of our most popular episodes rebroadcast for your listening enjoyment. When we come back, man, oh, man, do we have some great shows lined up for you. First out of the gate, I will have a show with Dr. Jody Duchesne, completely devoted to weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi for menopausal women. These drugs come up 
so much in our groups and in the mainstream media. And I just wanted to really cut through the noise and bring you the wisdom from a woman who has been studying these drugs for literally more than a decade. I have a study of hers from 2012. She is also an Ironman triathlete. She totally gets who we are and what we need. Great, great conversation. Great resource. I also have fabulous shows lined up with Myrna the Myrnavator Valerio and Peloton Sensation Christine Diercol and many, many more lined up for the new year. So stay tuned. I hope you all have a wonderful, peaceful, happy, healthy holiday season, and we'll see you in 2024. Until then, you know what to do. Stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.